Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening for those of us on the other side of the Atlantic who are who are dialing in. I'm Bill Glassball, Director of State and Local at the Volcker Alliance. I'm joined here with uh, Susan Wachter, Co-Director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. And we are here with our October special briefing, and it is a special briefing indeed. This piece has been looking at how states, cities, counties, agencies have been dealing with the physical impact of the coronavirus pandemic, which has been considerable, of course. And today's topic is local infrastructure spending cutbacks. All infrastructure work hasn't stopped, of course. Uh, the Alabama school system is, is selling a billion-dollar bond momentarily to finance work, so it's all is not lost. But what we're seeing across the country is transportations, mass transportation systems in deep trouble because of, of huge drops in ridership, uh, toll revenues sagging, and very often the, the easiest thing for governments to do when revenue sags, as it, as it has, is to postpone infrastructure work because it's stuff that can usually be taken care of later. The New York MTA, which we'll get to in a second, is bears witness to that. We have signals that date back to the 1930s, and for all I know, even even before. We have a, a wonderful panel for you today. With that, let me just get to a very brief introduction of our great panel, and then we'll we'll get to the discussion at hand. Joining us today is Allison Primo Black. Allison is chief economist at the American Road Bridge and Tunnel Builders Association and has been chronicling on a regular basis in a in a blog for the association's members, transportation projects and ballot initiatives that have been shelved. I believe we're up to 18 states with projects that are uh, that are not going forward at this moment, and and she'll talk about that in greater detail. Norman Brown is joining us. Norman is a non-voting member of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority Board of Directors and is also legislative director of the New York State Council of Machinists. He brings a unique perspective today on infrastructure work because, after all, it's it's the people who work in the transportation authorities who have to have to deliver the goods or or not deliver the goods, as, as may be the case. Bob Poole, Robert Poole, is Director of Transportation Policy and the Small Freedom Trust Transportation Fellow at Reason Foundation, which he founded. Bob is one of the most eminent transportation economists I have ever met and does a great blog on the Reason Foundation site, which I encourage you to, to, to tune into and watch. And finally, a repeat guest for us, Howard Kerr. Uh, Howie is Director of Municipal Bond Research for Evercore Wealth Management, has over 30 years of experience in the, the muni business, and is one of the most widely watched analysts covering the MTA and the New York region. Everybody in Muniland knows Howie, and we'll be dealing a fair amount with the MTA today, uh, obviously. So, without any further ado, let me turn the mic over to, to Susan Wachter from Penn IUR and, and get the show running. 
Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here with this distinguished panel. And let's begin with our first panelist, Allison Primo Black of the American Road Bridge and Tunnel Association. Allison, uh, we've heard from Bill that there is postponement of transportation projects. You actually have a survey of latest results. Please tell us what you've learned from your survey. Sure. Hi, everybody. This is Allison Black um, with actually the American Road and Transportation Builders Association. Uh, we're a trade association based in Washington, D.C. And as chief economist, we've really been keeping an eye on what's been going on in the market. We've had, you know, the early days, quite a bit of uncertainty. I think the first few months over March, April and May, there were several states that did shut down work, Pennsylvania, Washington, parts of Northern California at the same time. We also had reports that uh, there were a lot of headlines that states like Florida were actually accelerating construction activity because there was less traffic on the road. So a lot of different dynamics at play, but what we found is that over the summer, the amount of construction work did continue, but as Bill alluded to, we have definitely seen signs of stress and growing concern over the revenue situation for state and local government. So there are at least 18 states, 25 local transportation agencies that have put uh, projects on pause, either canceling them or delaying them. And there's been a wide range of what we've seen. Um, you know, a state like Ohio looked at the revenue situation and decided to put off two major interstate projects that they had in their plan for the coming fiscal year. They decided to put that off. We've also seen states like Vermont, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Wyoming pull back on a smaller number of state-funded projects. Uh, Kentucky was one example where they just canceled two months of bid lettings over the summer because of the revenue situation. And then I think North Carolina is probably the state where we've seen the most significant impact to date, facing about a 300 million shortfall. They have scaled back their program for the next year to uh, just 50 projects that will be awarded. That's because you know they'll continue to finish the projects they're currently doing, but given the amount of revenues they're expecting, they don't want to start a lot of new work at the moment. So I think that's the most extreme case that we've seen. Uh, the other thing is that there's an opportunity cost to what's going on. We've tracked a number of ballot measures, a dozen so far, that have been delayed. Some of those are very big measures in California, where the self-help counties are a major part of the market there. So that cost of not beginning to collect those revenues will affect those programs over the next few years. So what to look for, you know, in terms of we've gone through the second stage of the, the situation right now where really the revenues coming in have been, you know, we, we have a lot of documentation that revenues on the transportation side are falling short, obviously, of what had been forecasted and expected. And that gap is probably about 35 to 40 billion is what we estimate right now. So that's a big that's a big hole to, to climb out of. And every state and local government is going to make different decisions about their capital spending and how they're gonna address that issue. So that's what we're in the process of doing right now is really diving into those budgets to see how states will make their spending decisions for highway, bridge and transit construction. And there's a wide variety. Some states are gonna rely on bonding. They are going to use reserves and try and keep their capital programs intact. And other states are making the decision to pull back. So with that, I know we have quite a few folks on the panel. The last thing I'll mention, 
One thing to really keep an eye on is the situation with federal investment. Uh, the FAST Act, which is the source of federal funding over the last five years, that bill ended on September 30th. We are under a one-year extension, but federal investment, a lot of folks don't always realize this, accounts for about half of all state highway program capital outlays. So what happens in Congress over the next year as they decide whether to increase federal investment or to keep things at the status quo, that is gonna have a very big impact on the trajectory of the market over the next few years. So uh, thank you again, appreciate being on the panel and I look forward to answering some of the questions. Thank you, Allison. That is the key question, it appears, what the feds do. Uh, but we are already seeing, as you have said, major cancellations. And it's not as though uh, our infrastructure was in good shape. It was, to use a technical word, I guess, crumbling and postponing more infrastructure spending at a time of such low interest rates when the need is so great is obviously not efficient. Allison mentioned the, the, the surface transportation bill. There's been a lot of talk for four, almost four years of the Trump administration about a federal infrastructure program. How is the recession, the coronavirus pandemic going to affect transportation financing and funding? And, and what, are you, what are some of your recommendations? Thanks, Bill, very much. What I'd like to talk about is the potential for uh, invect, investing more private capital, more equity from the private sector into as part of the mix. We know that Congress, almost certainly Congress will do something on infrastructure next year. That's At least that's my prediction. But there's capital sitting on the sidelines that we're not really taking much advantage of in the United States in contrast to a lot of other countries. One source is infrastructure investment funds, which over the last five years, the 50 largest of those have raised $500 billion in equity. Some of that's been invested, much of it overseas, but a lot of it is dry powder waiting for good projects and would love to invest more in the United States. $500 billion, if, if that amounts to the 25% equity in a deal that's 75% financed by revenue bonds, would, be, would permit $2 trillion worth of infrastructure projects to to go forward that might otherwise not have a chance. That's one source is the funds. The other is public pension funds, which is really underappreciated. Uh, over the last uh, 10 years, U.S. public pension funds have started putting a toe in the water of infrastructure investments, revenue generating infrastructure. They can't find very many projects that you can invest equity in in the United States because airports, toll roads, and so forth are virtually all owned by the government. They're 100% debt finance. But they're investing overseas. They're investing, uh, CalPERS, for example, has owns 10% of Gatwick Airport. Right now, not a very good investment, but uh, it has been historically and probably will again. 70 US pension funds, own the concession, the long-term 70-year concession for the Indiana Toll Road as a long-term P3. And so there's scope there for very much. So what kind of deals, what, what could we do? I think there's two opportunities. One is to refurbish and improve existing infrastructure, brownfield infrastructure, if you will. The other is to uh, uh, add new capacity uh, uh, at airports, at uh, toll roads, at seaports, and other uh, infrastructure. Reason put out a paper uh, in August looking at the potential of infrastructure asset recycling in the toll road sector. We identified nine major uh, U.S. toll road systems, such as the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the New York Thruway, and others, using international figures uh, of what, what are investors paying for long-term leases, 
basically concessions of those. We estimated the gross value of those nine, the market value is $127 billion. And after paying off the existing uh, revenue bonds, uh, the net available to the governments that own them, state governments, would be $77 billion. There is one such project uh, actively under consideration. That's the E-470 toll road in Denver. I did a briefing for the Citizens Committee that is that is looking into that on Tuesday of this week. That proposal, unsolicited proposal from an overseas company, toll road company, that is 100% owned by one of the largest Canadian public pension funds. And so that's an interesting play. Another opportunity for aging infrastructure is the interstate highway system. The Congress said... Uh, in the FAST Act, asked the Transportation Research Board to do a study on the future of the interstates. And that report came out in December of 2018. It said the pavement is wearing out on much of that system. It's beyond its design life. Uh, they estimated a $1 trillion cost over the next 20 years to rebuild and modernize the interstates for, for the 21st century. And that seems, strikes me as well beyond what Congress uh, is would be likely to fund, but it's an ideal opportunity for long-term public-private partnerships uh, financed by uh, equity and revenue bonds, toll revenue bonds. Pension funds, as I said, they already do the Indiana toll road uh, as one example of that, but all the non-toll interstates, they would have to have toll uh, tolls put on them, but I don't think that's a complete political non-starter. It's, it's an opportunity of waiting to happen. Finally, I, I think the idea of bringing private capital more into infrastructure in the U.S. through long-term P3s has the potential to be bipartisan. In 2014, uh, Chairman Schuster of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee put together a bipartisan uh, task force of committee members that did a very nice report saying, yeah, this kind of P3s really do have a role to play. And that was it was signed on by the group, all of them, uh, Democrat and Republicans likewise. The Obama administration Treasury Department came out with a, a number of proposals to jumpstart private capital, including the idea of, of QPIBs, a, a, an expansion basically of the private activity bonds that Congress authorized for these kinds of projects many years ago. And I think if public pension funds really start making public about the need for more opportunities for them to invest in revenue generating U.S. Uh, infrastructure P3s. This, I think, could make the issue more bipartisan. So I'll stop there and look forward to further discussion and questions as we go on. Well, thanks very much, Bob. Bob just discussed the role of private capital. You're on the MTA board. The, M the MTA is is broke and hoping for another loan from the feds, which may or may not happen. It seems to change by the minute, if not the hour. New York's have limited assistance because it's broke. Ditto the How does the MTA get out of its, its pickle? And also, uh, is there a role for private investment in helping the MTA get back into fighting shape? I'm going to ask you to, to first take on the, the market's reaction to the infrastructure issues, especially to some of the big mass transit systems like the MTA or BART, and explain why the, the muni market has been relatively un, untroubled by, by what's going on here. Well, I think the muni market recognizes the importance. Let's focus on the MTA or you mentioned BART in the Bay Area rapid transit system of making sure they're viable entities just to support the economy. Because frankly, a place like New York or in the Bay Area, areas in Chicago or Boston really can't function without mass transit. 
So, and in some ways, the MTA is a victim of its own success. It has one of the highest fare box recovery ratios, how much people are paying in fares to cover their operating expenses of any mass transit system in the country. No mass transit system is self-supporting where they can cover their operating expenses and not even bring into account their capital expenses. So New York has always been supportive of the MTA for years. When things get tight operationally, they've added other fees or taxes to help support the revenues of the system. So in New York's case, they've added things like a payroll tax for the MTA, a congestion pricing fee, making sure the tolls on the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority are up enough because those excess monies are going to the MTA as well. And the expectation is that the state of New York can and will support the MTA if additional federal monies aren't forthcoming. So, and in fact, this year, the state of New York issued some uh, personal income tax bonds secured just by the income taxes of the state to help the MTA through this as well. So there has to be a realization that the fare box revenues that come in, which make up on on the railroads 40% on the subways and buses, maybe 50% of the revenues are going to take a while to come back. And there is a expectation that a state of New York will support it for, if you want to call it selfish reasons, in that the, the state's overall economy and the state's finances would suffer if you don't have a functioning MTA. I mean, and the other point is, and it's not to be diminished, the MTA had to function under these pandemic conditions because they are the ones that are responsible to a great extent to transporting a lot of the essential purpose employees around the city and region. So it's not as if they have a choice and could really scale back. Now, it is clear that the MTA has to be better about managing their costs and managing their capital plans, but this is a extreme situation. So I think the market is, uh, well, well, certainly, the if you want to look at in terms of bond prices and spreads, the difference between uh, how the MTA is trading versus AAA highest quality gilt edge securities, that has widened out quite a bit, as as they say. But it's come back in because the state's willing to help. And the only other point I want to bring up about the state of New York, if the MTA was in a region where it's a weaker state, say the state of Illinois, which is having its own extreme budget problems, investors might not be as sanguine about the MTA. But with the importance of the MTA to the to the region's economy and the strength of New York overall and its uh, economic base, I think the, the market has had 
somewhat of a muted response, although it certainly had an effect on the MTA and its cost of borrowing right now. And quite instructive that the MTA has been one of only two borrowers from the Federal Reserve's municipal liquidity facility. Am I correct on that? That's correct. It's the MTA and the state of Illinois, which I mentioned earlier, are the only two so far. And I'm assuming I won't go into the municipal liquidity facility now, but we could bring that up later and go through why it's been such limited use, but a help to the market. And so we shall, because we've got a, a number of audience questions about just that. Tell us about, you're an insider on, on many levels at the MTA, the role of unions, how the MTA gets out of its pickle, how he pointed out the essential role of the MTA uh, to the region, and it's also the, the nation's largest mass transportation system. What's the future? And, and as a representative of, of unions on the board, what's the, the labor role in this? Well, we can uh, discuss the labor. I mean, I appreciate you referring to me as an insider. Maybe that'll raise my cachet a little bit. I'm a, I'm a about as outsider of an insider as you could be. I try to play as close as possible with the 5,500 workers and nine unions I represent from Metro North. I'm very close to their particular interests. You're really on themes that um, I spend most of my time thinking about, so um, I'll fire away at you. And let me go to a couple points Howard made. One was the particular character of the MTA regarding Fairbox recovery at what was one of the greatest achievements of of the MTA, and in, I guess in a parallel, you could say BART as well, are relative high fare box recovery rates. Uh, you can look at that in several ways. You can look at the uh, fare payer paying a whole lot of the freight, or you can look at it in terms as a, as a measure of efficiency, and it's rare you uh, look at anything at the MTA as a measure of efficiency. So, um, in many ways, we are the authority that other people love to hate. But all that aside, in the age of COVID, having a system that depends so heavily on fare box recovery dictates system that is full of crowded trains. And crowded trains, whether they're safe or not, is a matter of uh, scientific conjecture at the moment. Certainly in Hong Kong and uh, to a lesser extent Paris, people are getting back on the trains and uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, COVID-related problems. However, um, how quickly will New Yorkers uh, begin to accept the same thing and how quickly they will come back to the office, how quickly they will return to Broadway, the many things we know and love about New York are all up in the air as we speak. Now, um, what we really can't do, I mean, that, that as the crisis continues to work its way through the system, to the extent we cut service, we effectively crowd the trains and drive people away. So that we will have a system going forward that is less dependent on fare box is something that I can be written in stone, that there have to be other forms of financing. Then we get to, you know, the references to, um, P3s, um, public-private partnerships, which is inserting itself in the discussion. I suggest it's inserting itself in the discussion because of the failure of government to finance these things. And the failure of the government to finance these things is, in part, what it, you know, this is sort of the sound of government drowning in a bathtub. The more efficient way for to finance in the long run would be to tax and then spend. 
we're not going to do that. So then we fall back into the what else can we do? And I do find it uh, instructive that public pension funds in other countries are so interested in American infrastructure. It's almost as if we are a sitting target. Since we're unable to tax, they can come in with their actual pension funds that are under some level of pressure in the U.S. to fund things that our governments can no longer fund. And I, I suggest that if people look at the um, as the Indiana Tollway, I've, I've considered it an instructive lesson in how these things do not work. But, I, you know, I'm kind of looking for the negatives in these. I just found it interesting that it was cited as a success by your earlier speaker. So I guess maybe I'll give it another look, maybe with my calculator uh, closer at hand. Now, each financial crisis has its own DNA. And when you start comparing this to the period in the early 70s of the municipal bankruptcy, I think there's a few obvious differences. First of all, New York it's not New York City against the U.S. or New York City against the world, which we generally sort of wear as a badge of honor in New York City. And it's second, there's no obvious uh, non-governmental leaders to rally around the solution as there were. Previously, certainly from the labor side, there's no big personalities like Al Shanker. There's, there's pretty big personalities. I mean, we know labor leaders tend to be, um, you know, we're quite often the loudest guy in the room. There's no Al Shankers. There's no um, Victor Gottbombs. There's no um, Van Arsdales. And there's, I don't see a lot of business side leaders that are stepping up to try to resolve this either. There's Obviously, it's going on. I, I uh, resist the uh, temptation to think nobody's planning about how to work their way out of this. I think some people are planning, but they're, those are insider conversations that this outside insider is not privy to. I do believe there's plenty of people on the MTA board that understand the depths of finance. There are plenty of people that are concerned about the spreads that I believe Howard spoke about as well. I mean, we you know right now, we're going to... I believe it's fairly clear we're going to try to borrow as much as we can to keep service running at as high a level as we possibly can, as long as we can. Then it comes down to sort of a, a, another difference I'd like to point out with the early 70s. In the early 70s, the MTA was fairly young institution, and what the appropriate investment level from the state was never really sussed out, and it's still a matter of debate. For, and so for over the years, each time there was a financial crisis or each time the MTA needed capital infusion, there was a sort of exercise of uh, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa to um, declare the institution a failure. Yes, we're a failure. And then the legislature, once we declare ourselves a failure, the MTA, then the legislature can step in and create a new financing vehicle. And that's what they, this would happen. I mean, it's happened several times since I've been on the decade and a half I've been on the board. Um, certainly uh, 2009, subsequent to the um, financial crisis, the um, Great Recession, it's called, a lot of our uh, funds were very problematic, much like they are now. See, the, the, all the uh, revenue streams the MTA receives are very cyclical in nature. I, I would say with the exception of the fare box, the uh, and the, whether the um, mortgage recording tax is yielding is a function of how many people take out mortgages, how many people, and that is a 
has a cyclical function. So, you know, it happens quite when the MTA's other finances are low because of um, whatever uh, business cycle, then these other streams diminish as well. So there's a cyclical character to our present funding streams that I would like a way around. Now, to do that, you have to look for other sort of financing methods and you know among this among world systems I, I you know i find financing to be something people it's your people's business not mine but i i find it something that we're really stuck in the last century or even the previous century on how we finance these things of course the railroads never would have been built without all sorts of bonds one of my favorite thing bob foreign does when someone retires at the mta a colleague of his he'll give them a uh, heirloom bond that'll have it framed and they're quite beautiful printing. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it's interesting that now we get, you know, after 150 years of railroading, we're still um, muddling around trying to figure out how to finance things through bonds. And, um, you know, it's all well and good. Like I said, we're going to be trying to borrow our way out of this. So um, hopefully they'll, you'll have faith in uh, keep the, uh, you know, the, though it's not been the case the last, been several downgrades and each time they've done it the mta's had to pay more for its capital and it you know how how much are you going to turn that around on uh, the employees and the riders there are other ways to finance the other people on the board have brought up methods of financing which i you know i, I was kind of find a hole in each one of them andrew albert who's a public member of the board uh, his position is not a lot different than mine except he represents the riders He's advocated for increasing the gas tax. And, you know, there's reasons why the gas tax has not been raised nationally. And I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that it would raise sufficient capital, certainly to dig us out of this hole, but it certainly as a new stream of capital would have some possibilities. The uh, Local 100 recently, I've heard them advocating for a stock transfer tax, which I know has some degree of political momentum in Albany. And I'm, I'm Personally, I'm unsure of the long-term future of the viability of that. Uh, certainly, that would, people at Wall Street landlords are probably uh, a little scared of that one. I don't know um, to what extent uh, the capital would flee, the uh, trading would flee New York. That's the obvious problem with that. I personally favor um, financing schemes that uh, I guess have a certain private character in that I feel the MTA, we're not discussing in this whole discussion, uh, whole period the mta is it brings a lot of heat to the issue uh, because of our history of having to declare uh failure before we get any other money but i feel the system should be run much more as a uh, public good as a public utility and i guess that would make it less attractive as an investment vehicle as a, as a p3 I, I feel it should be more like the water company the water district and that it should be a public utility and that and the amount should be charged to the uh, real estate proximate to the subway and railroad stations and that they should be charged in the same way they're charged for their water how much it costs to deliver their water and that would eliminate a lot of the borrowing necessary and that's my particular favorite scheme there's not a lot of momentum for that scheme i don't think you probably discussed it much yourselves and that may show what a fringe character I am. But I, the basis of that is that we would draw our financing from this thing, the main thing we create, which is urban real estate values and urban density. 
And a lot of these things, uh, this is a moment in time. You look at it and say, well, my God, the real estate business, the tenants can't pay the landlords, the landlords can't pay the banks. What a horrible time to whack the real estate uh, market with another um, VIG. But um, I don't find it so. I find that this is maybe a good time to be doing it because this is a sort of bottom. And going forward, looking for new investment uh, vehicles is preferable to me rather than sort of cutting off our legs that are stuck in a trap here. Right? You know, um, the, uh, and I do find it, it very interesting that the foreign government pension funds are such important investors in U.S. infrastructure. And, and I believe as well in some operations, I believe that one of the French um, pension funds is a big investor in small bus operations and I believe even commuter rail operations in America. And um, in one of the first things some of those buyers did was attempt to cut the pension funds of the employees that work there. So that's the sort of, and I, you know, and I feel what's happened is distrust is expensive. And when the parties do not trust each other, it's very hard to rally around a solution. And I believe that that is, you know, part of what I picture I painted at the MTA uh, is a sort of a system of perfect distrust between the parties. And it's hard to go from there to all pulling together in the same direction for whatever financial outcome can handle the, uh, the huge mountain of problems uh, we're facing at the MTA. I think you've quite accurately pointed out that this is a, this is a uh, version of our political divisions written somewhat smaller, but funding and financing are a big issue. I just want to remind everybody that we're listening to Special Briefing coming to you from the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research, available on both their websites, uh, ours and uh, ours and uh, uh, Penn IURs. Susan Walker is my co-host today. She asked me to, to handle the Q and A. Uh, she had a she had a step off off stage, and. I want to turn back to an, an issue that, that Alice brought up at the start. We have two people, two think tank and association people here who watch Congress very closely. And then uh, and then let's move on to the issue that, that Howie raised, which is the Fed. Uh, the Surface Transportation Act uh, is, or pardon me if I forget all the acronyms, but the Surface Transportation Bill is, is up for renewal or extension. You know, Allison, to tell us about the, the, the chances for that, what you expect, and also, I guess, for Allison and Bob, what would the differences be between a, a Trump, four more years of a Trump presidency and a, and a Biden presidency in terms of how transportation funding might be managed in the White House and Congress? So, Allison, why don't you go first, if you would, please? Sure. Happy to start off this part of the Q&A. So, I think Certainly, we saw quite a bit of activity this year. So first of all, the FAST Act, the bill did expire September 30th, and Congress did pass a one-year extension. So that at least provides some stability, not additional revenue, but at least states know what to expect for the coming year. But there certainly was some activity this past year. The Senate did pass a bill through the EPW committee. It did not pass the full Senate, but it would have provided an increase of about 27% in highway and bridge federal investment. So that at least is the baseline, I think, hopefully of what we would be looking at for any discussions in a new Congress in the coming year. The House last year also passed a bill that called for a robust 
uh, increase in the program. So even though those bills are not carried over into the new Congress, there at least was quite a bit of movement before COVID really just changed the entire landscape in Congress. So that is good news. I think in terms of the administration or changes in government, I think infrastructure has clearly been discussed as a priority on both sides of the aisle. And it will remain to be seen if that continues to be the case, depending on who is in power. Bob, do you, would you care to weigh in on this? Yes, uh, well, I would like to suggest uh, some broad differences that likely be the case with the Biden administration compared with the second Trump administration. We've seen some previews in the House Transportation, the TNI bill that uh, produced by the Democratic majority that called for greater emphasis on climate change in as, as evaluating criteria for highway and transit projects an emphasis on expanded high-speed rail. And we know that as Senator, uh, Senator Biden was often called the Senator from Amtrak. And uh, uh, he said a lot of things about potentially nationwide high-speed rail. So that would be one kind of uh, emphasis there. The Trump administration has never really produced beyond an initial paper that was produced in the White House by uh, analyst D.J. Gribben. That paper focused a lot on conditioning a big expansion of federal money on state and local governments uh, being willing to up their ante. Now, that's, of course, a little difficult now in post-COVID, but also on trying to uh, provide incentives for more private investment through public-private partnerships. So perhaps we can only speculate, but if there were a second Trump administration, which I doubt, but if there were, uh, I think we would see more emphasis on those kinds of mechanisms in addition to some degree of expanded federal dollars going in. And possibly, probably, I would say, expansion of programs like TIFIA and private activity bonds that are used for P3s, but also used for other kinds of projects, uh, as long as they have some kind of a guaranteed revenue stream. So and that those expansions might happen under either administration, in, in my view, because there's been a lot of bipartisan support for those kinds of measures. And that's, thank you. That's that's actually a perfect segue to a, a couple of questions from John Ryan of InRecap and Natalie Cohn of National Municipal Research. And perhaps Howie would like to, or anybody would like to, would like to join in on this. Number one, this has been a, a really big year for for taxable municipal bond sales. Most most muni bonds are are tax exempt, but during the Build America Bond era, those were taxable, subsidized taxable bonds. There was a great market for them for non-traditional buyers, especially uh, non-U.S. buyers. We're seeing, again, uh, because rates are so low, the tax exemption isn't worth all that much. So there's there's a, a boom in taxable bonds. There's no shortage of private capital willing to invest debt in American, American municipal bonds, which are mostly for infrastructure. So I'd be curious to hear your feelings about that. And also about the Federal Reserve has $500 billion in lending authority. Bob, you brought up and John Ryan brought up uh, the, the possibility the TIFIA, the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act, TIFIA lending might be a more efficient way than, than having the than having the, the the Fed dole out money. Talk to us about so talk to us about the 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 market and also about alternatives to the Fed because that program is right now scheduled to end at year end with only with only two major loans given out, and it's a free for all. All your mics are open, so please go right ahead. 
This is Howard Cure. Let me start with the, the, the municipal liquidity facility from the Fed. And I'll also, but before I go into that, you know, you make a point about taxable municipal debt that's being offered. And what's driving that came from a couple of things. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did away with advanced refundings. So in order, you can't have as an issuer a tax-exempt issue taking out another tax-exempt issue. But nothing to stop you from issuing taxable debt to take out a tax-exempt issue or refinance it. And that's been happening since uh, Treasury rates are so low. And then you have a number of issuers out there looking to restructure their debt and give them some relief under these finance circumstances. So they are... Uh, essentially scooping and tossing some of their debt, not a great debt practice, but understandable. So that's what's driving that. And the, the uh, I'll go quickly through the uh, municipal liquidity facility. That was initiated through the CARES Act at the end of March when the market was in a bit of a turmoil and it provided a bit of certainty. Now, it has to be repaid within three years. Ordinarily, the market does not look kindly about borrowing to take care of operating expenses. However, I think there's an understanding or a tolerance to do this as long as the issuer could show a plan that will structurally balance its budget. You know, this is not direct aid, it's not a subsidy. It was really meant as a market backstop or a loan of last resort, and it's priced by the Federal Reserve as a pretty expensive vehicle, and that's deliberate because the Fed, I don't think, wants to get involved with municipal bankruptcies. It's not like a corporate bankruptcy where you could force the sale of assets or remove board members. These are elected officials that have critical assets. They can't just be sold off. So. Once they initiated the liquidity facility, even though they brought down the price in August, not many issuers took advantage of it because the market rallied, yields are low, and issuers have direct access to the market either through issuing debt or through some sort of direct lending program from banks. And then the revenues for a lot of states weren't as badly hit, at least through the spring and summer, as they thought, because the federal government came through with unemployment insurance benefits, the payroll protection program, the stock market rallied, so you didn't have a big decline in capital gains. But this is going to uh, expire at the end of the year. And actually, because you have to give a month's notice for using it, it's really expiring by the end of November. So they may consider reinstituting it if there's not a, a another federal stimulus program, or if you see wholesale uh, rating agency downgrades. So it's something to keep an eye on, but it helps stabilize the market, even though it wasn't heavily used since its initiation. If there is no legislation, should should the municipal lending liquidity facility be extended to, to 10 years? Or should, should they just say thank you very much at the end of the year and send the, re, the remaining capital back to, uh, back to the Treasury? Extending it to 10 years is just, I think, delaying some hard choices that have to be made 
by whoever is borrowing this money. So I think there was a reason why it was uh, such a short period, because you have to have a plan in place rather than getting so dependent on this borrowing. So I think the market would be a little skeptical unless there's such a tremendous recession, depression going in that there's very little choice. You know, as far as freeing up money for other purposes, I guess that would depend on what the usage is. But I think it helped the market before. And if the market's in turmoil again, it should be seriously considered as far as extending it or reinstituting it. Bill, this is Bob. Uh, if I may, I'd like to say a few words on behalf of an expanded TIFIA program. Of course. Um, uh, I, I, think and, and, I just ask you a question about that. It seems like the, the CARES Act went around a number of existing uh, loan programs, whether they were for small business or for transportation, and they just they just built new loan programs on top of ones that were on top of pipelines that, that were well experienced and seasoned and able to able to evaluate evaluate projects, which which kind of always confused me. I agree, and I don't know why they did that. But TIFIA, it's my, it's my favorite federal uh, credit program for three reasons. It has attributes that that are that safeguard the taxpayers' interests in avoiding bad investments. Number one. You have the project has to have at least one investment grade rating, which is a big key point. Number two, it's limited. It can't provide the large majority of a project's budget. It's limited to 33 percent by practice. I think Congress upped that a few years ago to 49 percent. But but no no TIFI loans have been issued at that high a fraction of the project. And third is this provision called a springing lien. TIFI loans are subordinate to the main financing throughout the life of the project, except in the event of bankruptcy, in which case. Uh, the TIFIA obligation springs to equal status with the other bonds. And all three of those mechanisms protect taxpayers' money. There's nothing like that in the private activity bonds, PABs, or in the RRIF, the railroad loans. Uh, you don't. You can have junk bonds in those and can have 90% of the project being paid for by that. And those programs offer a lot more risk to taxpayers' money. TIFIA really could be expanded uh, to a lot more infrastructure categories and might even substitute for uh, any of the different proposals out there for an infrastructure bank. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, TIFIA has been a great program. I think part of the challenge there is that while it's a very good financing tool, it has been very successful in a small group of states where the conditions are right for that type of investment. So we always are very supportive of it, but also recognizing that it's not going to be a substitute for a well-funded federal, state, and local investment program. Could I make a point, Bill, here on on, on TIFIA? Absolutely, Norris. I concur with everything you said about the program. However, um, there's, I just like to point out one thing that's sort of ridiculous from my point of view is that you, government, the rest of the federal government asks the localities to step forward with their own financing skin in the game to sort of drop or lever this whole financing process. And New York has done so with the congestion pricing program, which is currently um, I, I wouldn't even say being slow walked. It's trying to, you know, it seems to me the anti-urban forces in, in um, D.C. are trying to, like, kill it in its crib. And uh, it also puts more pressure on all the other forms of financing because we're not getting that billion, billion and a half that was projected to be achieved through the um, 
tenant all bondable as well through the congestion pricing program. That's the only point I wanted to make. I, it's, it's a sad situation. Well, Bob, I know you, you've written about this, about congestion pricing uh, and as being a tax and not a toll, I, I think is the way you characterize it. It depends on how, how it's structured. I think as it was planned for and probably will eventually go into effect in New York, it's really more of a tax than a toll because it's not directly benefiting the people who pay the charge. It's benefiting the people who use transit. And that was that's the design. That's the intent. My general principles don't like that, but I think for in the in a case of a city like New York, where the transit is absolutely essential, particularly the the subway system, it's got to be paid for by something, and uh, and this is probably a, a, among the among the better or least bad ways to do so. Well, it won't surprise you that I very much disagree with that characterization, and whether it's a tax, so you know, it'll it has a market effect, and and oh, absolutely. And, and so, but here's what it is, is it's really a road building program. There's going to be more space on our roads as well. The toll payers will be benefiting from this in less congestion, higher labor productivity. Oh, everybody's always concerned about labor productivity instead of, you know, uh, HVAC mechanic traffic in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, the uh, mathematics behind it are proper, but it's not, it's not something that the driver is entirely without benefit. And that is. I, I agree. I agree, Norm. Does anybody have any insight as as to why uh, the Trump administration has uh, has just not not acted on this? You know, is this is this part of a of a that there there's a there's an imbalance in in certain federal funding uh, mechanisms uh, for for smaller states versus more popular more populous states uh, in terms of funding formulas. Uh, does anybody have any insight about, about why this is why it is? For the same reason they're not building the tunnel, the uh, Amtrak tunnel? Is, that, is it the same reason? Uh, or is that a different reason? Uh, the Gateway Tunnel. There's many anti-urban characters to uh, Mr. Trump's term in office, except where his real estate investments are. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it at that because we're getting up to the top of the hour and uh, we, like to, we like to stay on time. You've been listening to special briefing from Penn IUR and the Volcker Alliance. You can see this and all of our previous episodes, all 15 out of them, on, on both Penn IUR and Volcker Alliance websites. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.